you have your Bibles, please open them to Psalm 107. We'll get back to Matthew next week. Uh, I think it's, it's wise at times to remember where we are in our year. To remember that this is a time in which we should be giving thanks. Uh, to provoke our hearts to worship the Lord in gratitude. And for those of you who appreciate the break from Matthew, you're welcome. Some of you are frustrated by that, so let me just tell you, during Christmas, my plan is to walk through Matthew more faithfully and not, not uh, head off into the Christmas season quite so deeply as maybe I normally would. But as you look in Psalm, Psalm 107, the theme is Thanksgiving. I think it's worth spending time on. It's worth working through this passage. It's a longer text, but I'm going to read it from beginning to the uh, end of the passage. Remember, these are psalms written for Israel's worship. They're written for us uh, to come and to consider God, to teach us how to worship him, to teach our hearts uh, their position before God, to teach us how to exalt God, to teach us how to humble ourselves. The psalms are just this rich, uh, theologically sound worship book in your Old Testament. If you don't spend time in the psalms, your, your worship, your praise, your mourning is probably somewhat crippled. It's like having a, a car not running on all of its cylinders if you're not in the Psalms on a regular basis. Just teaching your soul to worship like the psalmists of Israel. Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. When they cried to the Lord in their trouble, he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. They, they, me, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them in their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools to their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them in their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in the songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. 
They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns the rivers into a desert, springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns the desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all the wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. You may not have picked up on the theme, but if you're listening carefully, the theme is the steadfast love of the Lord. It's a common Hebrew word in the Old Testament. Uh, You would say it, the Hebrew chesed. It's this idea of God's faithful love to his people. It's a love that would be consistent with marriage where in the, in the highs and the lows of marriage, there's this bond to love. When your spouse is sick and green in the face and throwing up, you still care for them and love them. You don't love them just because they are beautiful or kind. You love them whether or not they're having a bad day. You love them when they're helpless. You love them when they're less than lovable by other people's standards. It's a type of love that David commits to Jonathan when Jonathan is about to go to battle. And Jonathan is soon going to be dead. And David promises to have a type of love for Jonathan that will care for his children even though Jonathan is gone and unable to to fulfill any obligation of friendship to his friend David. It's the type of love that God again and again expresses to Israel to, to bring them back to his presence and to restore them after they've wandered and rebelled. This is the theme of the passage. It's God's steadfast love. The psalmist walks us through four different characters. Uh, Some of you might have the the sermon notes that we handed out. I I have outlined those four different characters for you. I I think they lay for us kind of a a smorgasbord, a, a buffet of human experience to teach us something about God's steadfast love. If you look in the, in the first initial verses of the psalm, it calls for all of us to give thanks to the Lord, all of us particularly who have been redeemed and rescued. Now that does eliminate some people, doesn't it? There are some people who have never experienced the grace of God and the rescue of his salvation. And we look at this passage, it's speaking less of the eternal salvation and the grace of God more about the saving works in everyday life that lead us to God's gracious throne of salvation, both because of personal experience, but also what personal experience teaches us about our need for God eternally. When we look at this passage in verses 4 through 9, he, he lays out for us, uh, I'll call him the wanderer. 
This prototypical person who is fighting for satisfaction and looking for something better. This is, this is common to the human condition. It is often what drives us to go to colleges and universities is the desire for something better. We'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars pursuing better in life. Look down with me in verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. This person is looking for satisfaction in life. They're looking for something with which to latch onto that makes their soul rest. Do they find it? Look down in verse 5. They're hungry, they're thirsty, and their soul is fainting. God has given them no satisfaction in life, even though they're in search for it. They're going to, to cities and they're trying to find some way in which to anchor their soul to something that gives them joy and satisfaction, and they find nothing. Because they find nothing, what then do they do? They cry out to the Lord. And we, we begin to build a rhythm that you'll see in the next three stanzas as well, is need unmet. Or maybe we could say affliction. Followed by a cry for help, then God's salvation and answer to that cry, culminating in thanksgiving and worship. And so we see the need is this soul is unsatisfied, unable by wandering through all of this earth to find satisfaction. And so finally in helplessness, they call out and say, God rescue. Looking again in this passage, verse 6, they cry to the Lord in their trouble and he he does what? What does our sweet creator do? He answers. Verse 6, they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and he... Okay, it's three days since you ate turkey. You can't still be tired. They cry to the Lord, and he... He delivers them in their distress. Now, now look at how... Kind our God is. Verse 7, he led them by a straight way until they reach a city to dwell in. I think at times, and although it's not untrue, but at times we can frame God's grace as though he only gives us himself and that's enough. And it is enough. But God gives this wandering soul who's thirsty more than just his own presence. He leads them to a what? And what do you find in most cities? Food and water and provision. If you go back, they're, they're, they're metaphorically hungry and thirsty in verse 5. He leads them to a city and he takes care of them. Verse 8, so let them do what? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wonderful works to the children of man. For he does what? This is the real grace in this first stanza. He does what with them? He satisfies. I am so tempted to just sit and rest in this stanza. The world is on a quest for satisfaction. And there is only one place where it can be found. In the presence of our God. And there's a double grace here, isn't there? 
He gives them prosperity. He brings them on a straight path. The idea is, is they can successfully navigate on, on the course of this earth to a city in which they can land and do well in. But God's grace didn't stop there. He then brings satisfaction. Christmas is probably the most exposing moment in our home where I can see satisfaction does not come through things. We will spend Christmas morning enjoying the opportunity to give and to delight in people receiving. And so we'll watch our children open up toys. And it's not very much longer before they're bored with the things that we hemorrhaged money to purchase them because it promised happiness. And how long does that happiness last? How long does the Christmas joy infuse your little four-year-old so that he's just happy. How long will it be before they're fighting with a sibling? How long will it be before they're saying, mom, I'm bored. Our children are preaching to us in those moments. Stuff has never satisfied unless God gives satisfaction with his gifts. And what a precious and kind God to bring the wanderer who is soul thirsty to a place where he can physically rest and then he grants him satisfaction. What a kind God we serve. Are any of you thirsty? Your soul is dry. God is the soul satisfying good God who has always been present. He satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Not, not just things, but good things. Things that are good for you, do good to you, and result in your well-being. He moves to the next phrasing. The wanderer seemed to have no guilt with him, but look at this next uh, verse, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in, the afflic in affliction and in irons, for they had done what? They'd rebelled. So we have the first is the wanderer. The second verse talks about the, the man who's a rebel but afflicted by others. So he's imprisoned, he's oppressed, he's behind bars, he is helpless, and whose fault is it? He's a rebel. He might be the criminal who's sitting in jail, broken down by society because he's a bad guy. But look in verse 12. Well, well, let's go back to verse 11. He rebelled against the words of God, this man. He spurned the counsel of the Most High. Verse 12 then speaks of what God does. So what? God bows his heart down with hard labor. God brings him to the point where he needs help, but there's no one there to help him. Those are significant points in this psalm. This man is broken down by others. Who does the psalmist say is actually at move here? Who is actually at work doing this? God is bowing down his heart. So then what does this man do? You've heard this before. If you were to read 
verse 6, while I read verse 13, you would see they're almost identical. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he, he delivered. He delivers again. This guy is probably a criminal. He's a bad guy. He's where he belongs. He's suffering affliction because he's bad. And he cries out, and God delivers. God put him in a place so his heart would be humbled so that he would cry out so that God could deliver. How good is God? What then is the result of this man under the affliction by others? Verse 14, after he cries out, God brings him out of darkness, out of the shadow of death. He bursts his bonds apart and the culminating solution or or final statement here is what? He thanks the Lord. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Our God brings freedom to the oppressed. And there are times where the oppression is not our fault. How much greater God's rescue when it is our fault. And he brings rescue after the cry of repentance and help. We move to the next stanza. So we have the wandering man afflicted by soul thirst. We have the rebel afflicted by others who imprison and punish him. And now we have the fool afflicted. Come down with me into verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways. Now before we move on, just recognize that fool often in our language means someone who's silly and stupid who does dumb things. The Bible almost never uses fool that way as much as it is someone who rejects God, God's directives, and doesn't follow the word of God. So look here. He's a fool through his what? Sinful behavior or his wickedness. And because of the foolish person's iniquities, they've suffered affliction. So what type of affliction? Verse 18, they loathed any kind of food. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I could use some of that affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. If you look down, I think you see a little clearer um, that, that he, verse 20, heals them. And so we're probably talking about a physical sickness. Have you ever been to the place where you're so sick you don't want food? Right? Like, like food just kind of like curdles your stomach. You're like, ugh. And then you know you're better because what happens? You get hungry. So go back and, and, and considering that, look at verse 18. They loathed any kind of food to the point at which they were dying. And what do you do when you're on your deathbed and life has lost its joy and you don't care about anything and you just want to be done? They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered He delivers them from their trouble. He heals them. It's interesting. It reminds me of Jesus Christ in verse 20 when he sends out his word and healed them. Do you remember a couple of these moments in Jesus' ministry? Someone comes to him and he says, your faith has caused your son to be healed. And when the man returns home, he finds his son healed. It's like Jesus Christ's word is enough when he says, your son is healed. Your faith has made him whole. Jesus doesn't even have to be present. His word of promised healing is powerful enough to provoke a healing, even though he's never laid eyes or hand on the the sick soul. 
And here the creator God of the Old Testament shows that same power because in fact he's the same God. And he heals through his word. It is interesting, it's the same word they reject with their wickedness, but when they cry to the Lord, that word they rejected now becomes the word of healing and delivers them. Verse 21, let them, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. So now we've seen three characters. The soul-thirsty wanderer, the rebel who's afflicted because of his bad behavior. He's afflicted by others. Now we see, you see the fool who is also wicked and disobedient to Scripture, who's at the point of physical death and sickness, and he's rescued from physical sickness and death. And finally, we have the tiny sailor. Now he's not tiny because he, in fact, is somehow at a height disadvantage. He's tiny because he's in a big ocean made by a big God who's preaching his bigness. Look down with me in verse 23 at the tiny sailor. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. Now, now the point here is not that they saw that and had any good response but it's, it's like Bakersfield after the rain when, when the sky is clear, so like three days a year. And you're up early enough in the morning that the smog hasn't rolled in and obscured the mountains. And you look around and you're like, wow. Bakersfield really is a pretty place three days a year. Because you, you have mountains on three sides and often that happens in the winter and they're snow-capped and you just see that God has made this earth beautiful. But like the sailors, we often have our eyes obscured by the fog. They have the fog of spiritual blindness, and they see not the bigness of God. So he preaches. Look how God preaches to them. Verse 24, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works, and I'm telling you, 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 you think of Bakersfield fog, they don't see the mountains. Verse 25, and he commanded, that is God, commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. On the waves is the point. So you can feel the wave cresting as these sailors are being slammed up into the heavens. And then down to the depths, their courage melted away. Uh, now the ESV says evil plight here. Probably the idea is troubled plight or miserable plight. It's not that they're evil. It's that they're experiencing trouble. Okay, so, so these sailors are, are being preached to by God that they're small and helpless. They've lost their courage. Not only did they lose their courage, verse 27, they reeled and staggered like drunk men, and they were at wisdom's end. It says wit's end, but the point is, they lost their ability in strength to control the ship. They lost their ability with wisdom to navigate the seas because God is preaching to them, he is big, and they are tiny. And so what does a tiny sailor do in the big sea when he is at strength's end and wisdom's end? They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them. 
from their distress, and he made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Can you not immediately start connecting this to the Gospels again? Any of you starting to picture Jesus Christ walking on the waves and, and saying something like, peace be still, and there's calm, and the disciples are, are they're afraid because of the power to calm the Sea of Galilee. And God of the Old Testament is doing the same things because he is the same God. So he rescues them. He makes the storm to be stilled. Verse 29, the waves, the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet. And God brought them to their desired haven. What a good God. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. One of the subtle themes of this entire psalm so far has been the regathering of people together to worship the Lord. If you were to go to verse 3, the redeemed of the Lord are to call out that God is good, his steadfast and love endures forever, for he gathers them. And then he names the four points of the compass. And actually south is the word sea in Hebrew that the ESV translates it south for us. But the point is God regathers from all of these distant points on the compass and brings his people to worship. You look at the fool who is rescued from his rebellious folly. And he, he ends his thanksgiving with sacrifices of praise. And now we have the tiny sailor. And he ends his, his rescue with thanksgiving to the Lord, but not just thanksgiving to the Lord, with extolling God in the congregation of the people and praising him in the assembly. You know, throughout this psalm, there has been this command to the redeemed. Let the rescued, the redeemed, those who've experienced God's salvation, do what? Thank the Lord, for he has delivered them and done wonderful deeds. There is a moral imperative that rests heavy on the shoulders of all of the rescued, redeemed, and saved. Thank the Lord. Now, he doesn't stop there. I want to skip down to the very last verse of the psalm and then use that to, to just incite us to further study in this passage. Look at verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Now, that is a sobering application. Because we often read psalms like this, we're like, oh, that's really cool. Move on. We spend one day of year Thanksgiving. We give, we give some superficial moments in our hearts to, to contemplating what God has done. Look again at that last word. What do the wise do? It says they attend to these things. As the same term, a shepherd would be, uh, would be used of a shepherd who is surveying his flock and evaluating the sheep. There's to be time to consider, to understand, to provoke yourself to, to consider how God might do this again or what God is, is doing in, in his providence and kindness in the world. So let me just kind of move then to this thought. Wisdom should make us slow down and consider. And I think when we look at the end of the psalm, he's given these four verses, and now he kind of does what I often do at the end of the sermon. He gives application stuff. He kind of meditates and pulls it apart a little bit for us. So look, at me, look with me in verse 33. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land and a salty waste. That is like the anti-blessing passage. Did you catch what he's doing? God turns a place with rivers of water into what? 
a desert. Who wants him to be your God? It's like, man, he ruins things. Springs of water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into salty waste. God is, God is messing up our earth. Why? Verse 34, at the end of it, because of the evil of its inhabitants. Continue on. He doesn't just do harm to this earth. He also blesses it. Verse 35, he turns a desert into pools of water. It's like the reverse of that first statement in 33. A parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in. It kind of reminds you of that beginning wanderer looking for a place of safety and security in a desert, doesn't it? They establish that city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. I think the psalmist is reflecting on just this simple but profound truth in all of scripture. And God is actively working powerfully in the world. Maybe I could just simply say it this. God's steadfast love requires the attribute of sovereign power or active power, maybe I could say. So, that, so there's, power, like, there's power that's inactive or inert. Right now our parking lot's filled with it. I don't know how many thousands of horsepower is, is just south of us here, but lots of it. I mean, some of you guys have these big old F-250 type of trucks. Exactly how much power is being moving, like moving right now, is active right now in our parking lot. How much potential is there? So we sometimes think of God like the parking lot right now. All of this massive God-like power, and he's sitting there in his lazy boy in heaven, drinking a soda, watching us do our thing. And the psalmist is preaching to us, that is not the case. God is not inert in power. He is active and doing and working and moving powerfully in our world so that there are curses this world experiences and blessings this world experiences because he is doing something. And sometimes we tend to kind of write off sovereignty like, well, you know, God is in control of COVID. I think the Bible would be much more direct in this and then like we as Christians kind of like feel like we have to apologize for it. God, I think, would actually probably just would be willing to take credit for it. Like, hey, whether it was made in a Chinese lab or it's from bats, I, I don't know as a human, but I'm pretty sure God would say, I made it. I sent it. And it's accomplishing my purpose. And we read a verse and we're like, well, you know, and we start trying to back away from trouble. Look again. Verse 33, he turns rivers into deserts. Calamities are from God because of evil. They are. So when we experience national calamities and personal calamities, God is not up in heaven saying, ah, I'm sorry, but just for the, the big picture stuff, I had to let that happen. God sent to us saying, from me, love your father. Here's some calamity. If you cannot believe that, 
then you have no basis to thank the Lord from this passage because you gut God of his steadfast love. And here's why. Steadfast love requires God's active power to be at work even in calamity. Why did God send calamity for the four kind of prototypical sufferers who are afflicted in this passage? Why did God do that? Because he, I mean, he's not the junior high boy pulling wings off flies to watch them in their misery. He's not the kid with a magnifying glass burning that fly afterwards. That is not our God. He is not watching us suffer with interest and some type of joy as we suffer. There is good, loving kindness that causes him to send calamity. What is it? Like a master chess player willing to sacrifice a pawn of joy in your life, he is moving you to grace. Because grace is only unlocked when the heart repents and is humble. And the human heart filled with pride cannot repent. And until God uses calamity like a surgeon's scalpel to remove pride from your heart, you'll never know grace. Ever. And this is the loving kindness of God that is so beautiful. Is that he looks at your sin-encrusted, cancer-filled life and loves you anyway. That's why his love is steadfast. Because he loves you enough to love you while you're a sinner so that he can get your sin out of you. But if he did not love you while you were a sinner, you would remain in your sin still. That's why God's loving, steadfast, faithful commitment to his people requires active power. That is, he has to actively be working in the world or his steadfast love is gutted of its power and effectiveness. God's steadfast love is also personally redeeming the upright. Why don't you look down with me in verses 39 and following. When they are diminished, that's the people, not the flocks from verse 38. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he does what? He pours contempt on these princes. Leaders are much more accountable than the people they lead. Woe be to our presidents and our governors and our politicians who lead our nation to embrace sexual evil, the killing of children, or any other such just reprehensible sin. They'll be judged harshly. He makes them into wandering, trackless wastes. But what does he do to the upright? He raises the needy out of affliction. He makes their families like those expanding flocks of verse 38, and the upright see it and are glad. Throughout this psalm, there's been this underlying theme that those who remain proud and secure in their own resources are ultimately dissatisfied and afflicted because of their dissatisfied soul. They're afflicted by others. They're afflicted with lack of health, 
And they're ultimately then left in a place of total helplessness like the tiny sailor. Because that's who we all are. We're absolutely helpless on our own. And so God breaks us down that he might bring spiritual healing when we repent of sin and turn to him for help. So go back to verse 40. He pours contempt on the princes. Verse 41, he raises up the needy. God personally rescues and redeems the brokenhearted, repentant call for help. So just, just as a little bit of a, a, a tag that I'm going to throw out there and move on, maybe instead of navigating life with strategies, you should just start by pursuing the Lord. We hit financial problems, relational problems, um, occupational issues. We have challenges with our cars. We have challenges with our health. What challenge was not somehow categorically talked about in here? Your soul thirsty? Turn to God. People hurting you? You feeling oppressed by others? Turn to God. Are you afflicted with bad health? Turn to God. Like, you know what's coming. If you're feeling small and nature is hitting you hard, and for, for most of human history, you lived an agricultural life without air conditioning and heating, without insulation and fiberglass keeping your house cozy or cool. Nature was one of your biggest enemies and your biggest blessings. If nature was, was against you, what would you do? Turn to the Lord. If you are hurting, if you are struggling, if you are afflicted, can you hear the repeated anthem of the song saying, turn to the Lord because he's steadfast in his love to his people. Again, the steadfast love of the Lord is an anchor. He does not move. He will be there when you turn to him. I can only imagine being in a relationship with someone who rejected, 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 hurt, hurt, hurt me. I'd be done. God is not like me. He is steadfast. And if you have been walking away from the Lord, if you've been rebelling against him, turn to the Lord and he will be there because he's steadfast in his love to his people. It's not mechanical. We can't play God. He is a person and he personally rescues those who turn to him. So what then are we to do with this psalm? Who is the hero of this psalm? It is certainly not the soul-thirsty wanderer. It is not the afflicted rebel who is getting hurt by being imprisoned and being abused because of his sin. It is not the fool who is rejecting God's word, nor is it the tiny sailor. The hero of the story is our Lord. His superpowers is steadfast love. And he shames Hollywood's quirky, stupid, imaginary heroes because there is nothing more amazing than an almighty God who loves 
an individual sinner because his love is steadfast. Have you thanked him for it lately? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And he repeats that line for us again and again and again. None of these people were saved because they were great. God in his kindness sent calamity to call people to turn from hoping in anything but him so that by hoping in him, he could pour out blessing. What is the reward for the righteous in this passage? And maybe it's worth saying, because sometimes we can, we can feel two tensions. On one side, we want to be careful that we don't promise prosperity because a lot of bad preachers do that. Hey, if you give to Jesus and serve Jesus, you'll be rich and you'll have lots of kids and your life will be great. On the other side, we can be like, hey, suck it up, love Jesus. It doesn't matter if the world's burning, love Jesus. And both, both have elements of truth in them. And so we're kind of like, we, we struggle with how to deal with this. And this is why I say God is not mechanical. He's not a vending machine. Throw in 50 cents of service, a little bit of prayer, hit the button, and boom, out comes blessing. Right? But he's also, he's also not to be played with. He's not a God you run from, and because of his steadfast love, you test him. And see if, oh yeah, yeah no, he's still with me. He still has steadfast love. Believe me, you do that, you will be hurting yourself immensely. So let me just suggest, I think this passage reminds us that righteousness is its own reward. Righteousness is its own reward. It is good to be righteous for righteousness' sake. Second, righteousness often in this life unlocks the windows of heaven to pour out blessings on us. But we have to look no further than Jesus himself to know that he was a man whose best friend was named Grief in Isaiah 53. He was a man acquainted with grief. That word acquainted means friend. If your friend is grief, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian and you're not living right. You may just be following the footsteps of Jesus, who for the sake of God's good purposes suffered so that he could bring others to grace. So let's be careful not to look at a passage like this and kind of have a mathematical vending machine response that says, God will give me blessing if I'm upright in this life. I think a passage like this, though, should not be ignored for that element. The Bible indicates that the way of the transgressor is difficult in Proverbs. There is goodness in doing right. If you're honest on your taxes, you don't stress when the IRS says we're going to audit you. At least not stress in the sense of running because you're guilty. It's annoying and obnoxious maybe, but it's not like, oh no, I'm going to go to jail. If you sell a used car and you're honest, you don't have to worry about the person driving back and saying, hey man, what did you do? can't believe you lied to me. When you're a person of integrity, it does protect you and it brings God's blessing. But again, that's not the guarantee. The point of this passage is to leave us all with this simple thought. God has steadfast love to his people. Therefore, he rescues them. So if you're suffering, 
run to God who is steadfast in his love, and he will rescue. Then after rescue, what do you do? Okay, it's worth doing. Let's, let's just trace this through the passage, and then we'll end. Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Come down with me to verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 15. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 21. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For the sailor. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Has God been good to you? Thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful deeds to the children of man. Has the Lord rescued you? Has the Lord been good to you? Has he saved you? Has he redeemed you? If the answer is no, the backdrop of this passage would tell you, call out to the Lord. How many times did we read, they called out to the Lord and he delivered them. He called out to the Lord and he delivered them again and again. If you have not experienced the rescue of God, call out and he will deliver so that you can join us because the redeemed of the Lord will call out the praises and thanksgiving because God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Father, thank you that it is anchored to your character, not our um, inconsistent behavior. Father, would you please strengthen our souls to have the discipline like wise people to consider your steadfast love and to praise you for it. Lord, your love will endure past our sin, past our struggles, past the inconsistencies of the spiritual disciplines that we struggle with, Towards the prayerless days, it will strengthen us to do right because your love is steadfast. Father, we thank you that you use calamity to maneuver your redeemed people to places where you can pour out your grace and blessing upon them because you move us to despair of any false hope. And thereby casting away false hopes, we turn to the true hope, our creator God, who is powerful and active in this world to personally redeem the upright because he is steadfast in his love to his redeemed people. Father, we thank you so much for being a God we can trust, a God who is powerful, a God who is good, and a God who loves us. Thank you for being that God. Amen.